Welcome to the Vantage Point Podcast from Grayling. I'm Laura Thomas, head of strategy, self-proclaimed geriatric millennial, and overly enthusiastic American based at our global headquarters in London. The Vantage Point Podcast hosts friends of the agency who offer different and studied perspectives on important themes we think our talent, our clients, and our industry should be smart about. Because keeping smart and attuned to what's coming around the corner is how we ensure our teams and clients have advantage in their sectors, in culture, and in conversations. In Nikki's next episode as the host of the Vantage Point Political Podcast by Grayling, she speaks with Luke Trill, a polling and policy expert who is now a director at More in Common, which carries out regular public opinion research and publishes regular research reports on a range of challenges facing the UK today. More relevantly for this episode, Luke was special advisor to Nikki at the Department for Education and shares some amusing stories in this episode from their times on the campaign trail. Now, the Vantage Point Podcast. Welcome to this latest Vantage Point Podcast from Grayling. I'm Nikki Morgan, and one of the roles I hold in my post-MP life is as a member of Grayling's UK Advisory Board. This year, we're running a special set of podcasts focusing particularly on elections, both here in the UK, but also globally. 2024 is the year in which countries making up more than 50% of global GDP will head to the polls and vote. So during this series, I want to unpack for you the thought processes that candidates and parties undertake to prepare for major elections, dissect some of the key issues driving both the political discourse and voters' decisions, as well as take a view with my guests on the twists and turns the world will inevitably experience on the road to these major democratic events. Now, we can be pretty confident that 2024 is a UK general election year. The opposition Labour Party has been polling strongly ahead of the governing Conservative Party for many months now. But is everything really as clear as it seems? And is the election all over, bar the shouting? And there will be a lot of shouting. Now, I'm pleased, very pleased to be joined today by someone who can help us make sense of all of this, the current UK electoral and polling landscape, more in Commons UK director, Luke Trill. Luke has impeccable credentials for this conversation. Before working at More in Common, he worked at Public First, and prior to that, he had extensive senior government experience in the field of education, working at the New Schools Network, Ofsted, and the Department for Education, where he very bravely worked for me, as well as Head of Education at Stonewall. Luke, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, listen, first of all, just tell us a bit more about More in Common, and in particular, the polling work that you do, because some of our listeners may well have seen you pop up on both TV, uh, but also you do quite a lot of work for Times Radio, don't you, in terms of telling them about what's going on? Yeah, of course. So More in Common was set up in uh, 2016, 2017. And we were first set up actually following the tragic murder of Joe Cox, who was obviously killed in the run up to uh, the Brexit uh, referendum, murdered by a sort of far right extremist. And our mission has always been, how do we tackle polarisation? How do we kind of get a grip on those big forces which risk pulling society apart. And the way that we do that, there are obviously quite a few organisations in our space. Some organisations focus on bringing people together locally and do really good work. And actually, the Joe Cox Foundation itself does a lot of that. What we do is slightly different. What we try and do is look at what are the big issues of the day and what do people really think about them? 
So what is public opinion on something like tackling climate change, on migration, those issues which have the potential to pull us apart? But also, how do we break down some of the barriers between what kind of ordinary people think and what people in Westminster, in Whitehall, uh, who you and I both know can often live in a little bit of a bubble, um, think about uh, the everyday. So we do lots of polling, focus groups. Uh, We have a segmentation of the public, which divides the UK into seven um, groups and really try and get under the skin of not just what people think, but why they think it as well. So um, now we start 2024, um, as I say, with it feels like the elections kind of basically decided already. But but look, tell us what the polling is telling are telling you. Um, is that right? Uh, have we? I mean, obviously we've got another ten months at least of this, probably. Um, but um, but you know, what what do you expect could could change? What's the polling, as I say, indicating at this stage? Well, as you say, look, from where we are today. It uh, seems like uh, a fairly uh, clear um, picture. We've got Labour somewhere between sort of 14 and 24 points ahead in the polls, which is a significant lead. You know, in fact, those, that sort of lead you're talking about landslide territory. The Conservatives now haven't been above 30% in a poll for almost six months, um, which is really um, quite serious. So looking at those those figures, what you would broadly expect to see if it all continued is quite a healthy Labour majority at the election. Um, and the Conservatives, perhaps not quite on 1997 levels, although, you know, in a worst case scenario, you don't rule that out, but heading for um, not a very good uh, result in uh, the election. That doesn't mean that the election is foregone. And there are a number of reasons uh, for thinking that. The first one is we have a very volatile electorate in the UK. You know, gone are the days when people just made their mind up and stuck with it. And if you just look at this parliament, the Conservatives have been as high in one opinion poll as 54% in the polls and as low as 14%. That is a huge range. It's actually, it might not seem it, it's actually quite reassuring. Um, that we have that because it shows actually our our electorate isn't entrenched. It's not like in the US Mm -hmm. where, as Donald Trump famously put it, he could shoot someone in the middle of the street and still uh, get 40 or so percent of the polls. The Democrat would still get 40 and then there's 20 percent. We we have a very volatile electorate. We do not know if that volatility is going to persist this year. The second thing I would say is that campaigns matter. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we saw that particularly in 2017. Theresa May went into that election with every, you know, we were expecting a, um, a conservative landslide, and of course, you know, went um, the other way and lost the majority. So the campaign uh, will matter as well. The other things, you know, there are questions over some of the sort of what might seem like minor factors, but could play a big role. One question um, that a lot of people have been discussing recently is the role of Reform UK, that sort of mm. populist right party. You know, if they do get, as some polls suggest, around 10% in the polls, that will cost the Conservatives some seats. Um, not as much as has been speculated. We think it's about 30 seats uh, they could cost, but still, it's not insignificant. That said, if you look at reforms performance in by-elections and local elections, mm. it's come nowhere near to that. Mm. And so the, the, some of us in the polling industry slightly worry, are the polls overstating Reform UK, because they use online panels, which are quite highly 
uh, engaged. So again, if they if that rise isn't real, that could help the Conservatives. And I think the two two big uh, things, really, perhaps the two biggest things, are one, you know, what what happens with the economy? You know, it is still uh, there was some suggestion, you know, post Brexit in twenty nineteen that we that culture rather than the economy was the new dividing line. I think we've seen that that revert, and actually. It's not happened yet. The sort of what the improvements in headline figures haven't yet translated into feel good, but you know, there's ten months for that to happen. Uh, and then the final, the final point, and I think this is the challenge that the Labour Party faced is when we ask the question, "Do you think it's time for change?" Seventy five percent of the country say it's time for change. There's really strong headwinds the government's facing. When you ask, "Would the Labour Party do things differently or better?" you don't get close to that sort of figure. Mm. And from the focus groups, there is a real sense that people are going to vote Labour at the moment, but it's not because they're in love with the Labour Party. And, you know, on current trajectory, Keir Starmer is about to enter office as one of the least least popular prime ministers. He's underwater. Debbie Cameron wasn't underwater. Tony Blair wasn't. I think you have to go back to Edward Heath, actually, to find someone who comes into office as unpopular. So all of those dynamics make me think, look, look, if we're being honest, you know, you would much rather be in Keir Starmer's shoes than Rishi Sunak's right now. Um, But I don't believe it's a foregone conclusion. I think the evidence of the past few years should make us very wary about calling it now. Yeah, it's all look. It's just so much to unpick there, um, and we'll come on talk about this sort of the issues in a in a moment. I mean, I strongly believe that it's the economy is the one that still is a critical issue in UK uh, general elections, and we'll see if that obviously is is going to be right. Um, but just you talked about um, people wanting time for a change, and obviously this podcast series is looking both at UK elections but also globally as well. And we're living in extremely volatile geopolitical circumstances with a critical US election later on in the year. And I just wondered if you ever pick up that in the in the polling um, reflective, which is that people are, they say they want change, but actually could end up being quite nervous for something dramatic in the UK, given the uncertainties of the globe. I think it's a really, um, it's a really good question, because if there is one other thing which defines the public mood along with this time for change, it is an absolute exhaustion with the politics of drama. You know, if you chat to people in a focus group, they will say we've gone through Brexit, then the rows about Brexit, then the cost of living crisis, or, sorry, before that, the mm. pandemic and Partygate. And actually, you know, what people say they want is they want to be able to either just not have to turn on the news or to turn on the news and not worry about what they're going to see. And there is a real premium for the political party that can basically convince people we're going to take away the drama. It's why you've seen you see Rishi Sunak lean into that. You know, I actually mm-hmm. think he's very often um, when we talk to people in his strongest when he does that safe pair of hands after shall we say, the bumpiness, um, which came before. Um, but similarly, Keir Starmer, right? Keir Starmer is not setting out a platform which is designed to uh, scare the horse. In fact, you know, um, perhaps the opposite. So they're both leaning into that kind of reassurance. And, you know, we've heard it said before, but there's good reason because it tests really well. This is going to be the security election for lots of um, people, this sense of who can provide that sense of security. And of course, it goes right across the big issues, you know, the economy, migration, climate, who who is providing 
that sense of security. And I think foreign policy comes into that too. I mean, you, you will know, um, you know, better than most, you know, foreign policy isn't something that sort of comes up on the doorstep, yeah. but, but it's more of a sort of hygiene test for people, mm. you know, but, you know, part of the reason that ultimately Jeremy Corbyn came unstuck was, you know, if you remember, there was that moment post the Scripple poisonings, and that was the moment you'd been riding high after the 2050, and then suddenly it was, you don't back Britain. So that's how I think foreign policy plays into it. Um, uh, reassuring me, I think, uh, for most of your listeners, we actually did a poll where we asked people um, if the US presidential election was here, would they vote for Trump or Biden? Uh, and I'm pleased to say it was a Biden uh, landslide, whether they can... Uh, convince uh any of their compatriots across the channel i do not know across the atlantic even i do not know yes exactly yes the, the sort of conversations with with the us and, and and the other thing i think about polling just interestingly we've seen um in uh in in well this month uh this this mrp poll that um is being used by certain members of the conservative party and donors for particular argument around you know migration the rwanda bill and, and everything else and you know there's there's much to be said about about that but the thing i thought was also very interesting was where they try to extrapolate the national poll into the results in seats and I just wonder whether you know you would uh, feel that of course of course all candidates like to think they're the ones that hold the seat it's their incumbency that's going to help them win or not win um but you know it is the case isn't it that there will be differential factors in different seats different parts of the country which mean that you can't just say here's a national poll this is what's going to happen across the country Absolutely. Uh, And, um, you know, we saw that, uh, we've seen that in the past few elections, you know, particularly when we've been in this moment of kind of change and realignment, different areas have shifted at different rates in different Mm. directions. You know, remember that in 2010, we had fewer, the Conservatives had fewer seats uh, than they um, have now, but they did hold seats like Battersea and Canterbury Mm. because they have just shifted in, they no longer hold those seats. So it's absolutely the case that, you know, politics remains local to lots of degrees. Now, in, in fairness to these MRP uh, models, um, as they're called, what they try and do is look at the national polls, but also look at the individual types of voter and the profiles of voters in those individual seats and to try and do a bit of kind of imposing that local mm. shift from the national polling. But as you say, you know, and I always say this to people, you know, Polling is as much an art as it is a science. And there will be areas where there are strong local campaigns. You know, we know the Liberal Democrats can be very good at doing that Mm. hyper-local stuff. But I, uh, perhaps I would say this, but I think there will be surprises in different directions. I think there'll be some Conservatives who hang on that you might not expect to. And I think there'll be others who'll be uh, surprise losses because of those factors that we don't know about. I mean, I did a focus group recently in uh, the Chancellor's uh, see, and people were most angry about local water shortages um, uh, in the seat, which isn't something that you get from yeah. a national uh, poll. So I would pay attention to them. The final thing, of course, I'll say is that sometimes, even with the best local campaigns, and again, you know, we know this having seen, you know, MP, very good MPs mm-hmm. and councillors mm-hmm. lose, sometimes you can't swim against the tide. Yeah. And if the tide is so big, you're going to get swept away um, uh, regardless. And I, I hope in a sort of strange way that gives some comfort to some MPs and councillors, knowing that actually sometimes there isn't just that extra canvassing session you can do to. Um... Yes, exactly. Yes, you did all you all you could, and it was a it was a national a national swing. 
let's talk a little bit about the issues. I mean, you talked about uh, security and we've talked a little bit about obviously the economy is still very uh, important. But but other issues that you're picking up and the one we haven't touched on so far, I suspect that a lot of our listeners might be thinking about is the NHS, uh, which which plays in all sorts of different different ways, actually. Um, so I just wondered if you could just take us through perhaps a bit of the, the key, the key themes and issues. And obviously, we've got a particular sort of perhaps a UK business audience, although people will have their own personal experiences as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you look at um, you know, our, our issue tracker, as we call it, the top issues that people care about has been basically static for about two years now, basically since the end of the pandemic. And number one is the cost of living. And it is a very clear number one, 75% say the cost of living is a top issue number two also very clear the nhs in our recent poll it was 46 percent. then there's the interesting three and four and these are the two that swap um each time is levels of migration and climate change and, and almost every month one pips the other to uh the post i would say we, we tend to spend rather more time talking about one than the other but it uh uh, certainly from the public concern, it's interesting. But what's interesting about climate, actually, is that even though they're about level, is um, that when you look at it by uh, using our segments as different groups in society, what you find on migration, perhaps unsurprisingly, is very polarising. Mm. So very progressive voters don't think it's an issue. More socially conservative ones do. So, so it expands the whole life. Um, with... Um, Climate change is not like that, actually. Actually, it's bunched up at the, not the very top, but it's bunched up near the top for all of the segments. It's actually far less polarising as an issue, which I've always found quite interesting that you can be, um, you know, sort of backbone conservatives and and worry about the impact on the countryside just as much as someone, you know, very progressive worrying about what it means for, you know, the global south and the developing world. Um, It's interesting. Um, but to go back to, to some of those, I mean, the NHS, I think, is a really, uh, you know, is crucial. I mean, you know, we know it'll be an election issue. We know that every election, Labour go in saying 24 hours to save the NHS. And then regardless of the result, the NHS does seem to survive. But, you know, that's how a campaign uh, works. I, I do think it is slightly different this time. And for a couple of reasons. One is those waiting lists have just become, you know, so big that when you do a focus group, Everyone has a story about someone they know or themselves on a waiting list. And in politics, again, you can talk about swings, polls, signs. Actually, stories are the most powerful part of politics. That's why the post office scandal obviously has had Mm -hmm. such high cut through. And I think this is a real problem for the government. Again, similarly, the sort of, you know, there does seem to be a problem with the GP model when people saying, well, you know, I called up at eight like I was supposed to. And then by 20 past, I was told there were no appointments, you know, some real frustration. And people do, you know, the NHS is one of those institutions which commands, you know, a lot of love uh, and affection. So I think, I think that is going to be a real challenge for the government in the election. The one I would say bright spot is it does seem like public patience with the strikes is wearing mm. thin now that if we when we did our polling last year, people were very clearly on the side of the doctors. Fast forward to today and it's about split, if not slightly more saying actually they're wrong to carry on um, striking, which which is a different dynamic mm. uh, to be in. And, you know, I, I think particularly if, um, Victoria Atkins continues that more kind of 
conciliatory line looking like someone trying to make a deal and being rebuffed actually there's a way of presenting that to the electorate saying look we are really trying I actually think that works a lot better uh, than some of the more combative language that we saw perhaps earlier in trying to sell it. So, so that's where the NHS, um, the NHS is. And then, you know, as the top, very top of that list is the, is the cost of living. And I think it's really hard for the government until, as I say, until people feel better um, actually in their pockets mm. for that to, for that to dissipate and to get any, credit for it and again I think the thing which is so damaging about the cost of living is when we do our focus groups it's not just an issue which affects that heat or eat group um you know obviously they you know they're suffering the most and you know need the most spot but you know the group just above that what we once called the just about managing that group say well no no I'm not going to you know I'm not going to starve but I've had to cancel the holiday and I'm not taking the kids out anymore and I'm putting stuff back when we do the shop and then the group just above that will say, well, you know, I'm no longer shopping at, you know, Sainsbury's, I'm going to Aldi and Little, I'm not driving as much, you know, right the way up. I have to say, I have slightly less sympathy for the gentleman who was from one of our wealthier segments who told me he'd had to turn the hot tub off for the summer because of the cost of living. Um, but, it does, uh, but that aside, uh, it does show how, you know, it's one of those issues which wherever you are, it's knocked you down a bit, unless you're sort of super wealthy. Yeah. Well, it's good advice there to somebody. If you're doing a radio or a TV interview, don't talk about your hot tub and the cost of cost of running it um, if you want to be seen to be uh, to be sympathetic. And just before we move on, I suppose the I don't know whether you're polling with picks this up. Do people think all of these issues, I suppose, particularly uh, I was going to say it's obviously climate, but, but I mean, I think all of them apply. Are the answers all with government or do they think that the business in the private sector has a role to, to play as well or does that perhaps that's that's not covered by the questions that you asked I don't know no, no it, it's it's a really good um uh thing to look at actually because particularly on something like climate where people don't just see this as being government say this do this they recognize and in fact they actually want business to be taking the lead and taking step forward there's an expectation that businesses play their part and it's actually business action on climate is far less polarizing than some of the other CSR stuff, um, which we know has uh, sometimes led to um, sort of online uh, spats mm. around. I think there's just this expectation that businesses do their bit and help um, consumers as well. Similarly, actually on, you know, the cost of living, I think one of the things that big business in particular has to be aware of is that there was real deep anger at this sense that whilst people were suffering some businesses were profiting uh, fairly or not and of course we know in lots of cases uh, there's a better but you, you, I still do focus groups now and people will say but they were making money off the back mm. of us suffering and I do think you know there is a there is a need, I think, for big business to think about how it resets its relationship with the wider public. We did um, did some work with UCL Policy Unit and Mark Steers on respect. And we looked at how much people trust and respect different institutions. Mm. And what was interesting was, you know, in the sort of high trust, high respect, you had you have the NHS, you have the National Trust, charities, actually schools. Um, RL Dairy were all up there and then you had sort of the monarchy and the Bank of England and civil servants who were sort of there actually the Labour Party there and then you had two 
institutions in this bottom corner of low trust and low respect for ordinary people. Uh, one was the Conservative Party, sadly. Uh, the other was big business. Um, and so I do think, you know, actually business thinking how they can help. And I know some businesses have really taken the lead on the cost of living, mm. you know, introducing like you know, mm. particular rangers in supermarkets. But there's that expectation. And even on something like the NHS, actually, you know, we, I think we um, sometimes assume that people do have this squeamishness to sort of, you know, private uh, involvement. Actually, most people are quite pragmatic about it. And I think both, well, both Victoria Atkins and West Streeting have probably got the public mood right about business involvement in the NHS, mm. which is if it helps patients, but doesn't at all affect free at the point of delivery, then go for it. Yeah. Now, earlier on, you, you talked about, you know, the setting up a more in common and particularly the, the focus on, you know, um, we're trying to tackle issues that pull us apart. And one of the things we keep hearing is that this could be the, the quotes, dirtiest UK election ever. And I wonder whether you've picked up again, you know, is that what the British public really want? Or are they actually going to punish those parties or politicians that fight incredibly dirty? Yeah, I think it sort of goes back to what I said about wanting a sort of quiet life. Um, I don't think people are in the mood for a boisterous um, uh, election campaign, let alone uh, a negative one. Like I think the 2019 campaign, which worked very well at the time, wouldn't work uh, in uh, the current environment. We've actually, you know, we've actually dug into some of the uh, negative campaigning. And, and actually, I think, you know, the British public are very, they, they have a very quite a strong moral compass and an eye for things which they just don't think are cricket. So when Labour produced those ads suggesting that Rishi Sunak was somehow deliberately responsible for um, child killers and paedophiles not being mm. imprisoned, um actually we, we tested that with a, a group not far from um your oil patch in Erewash, and they, they really didn't like it they, they looked at him and was like why is his face on it he's not responsible if there's a problem with the law you change the law but it's not it's not him ditto actually you know we've done work um on um you know, the attacks on starmer's record as um a barrister and most people go but wasn't that his job to defend those people wasn't it to do it so I think there is uh, there is a risk to do it. Now, that's not to say, you know, if we were chatting with some of the campaign managers, they'll say, oh, yeah, but people will say they don't like negative campaigning, but it implants an image in their mind. And and that is definitely true for some of them. But I would say the, the bigger risk, actually, regardless of that sense of fair play, which I think, it, you know, is important, is that it will look like a distraction from those issues we talked about that mm. people really care about. What people really, really want is answers on the NHS, on the cost of living, on migration. You know, how do we have a proper, effective control migration system? They're far more interested in that. And there's a risk that if this election becomes, you know, wasn't Keir Starmer a terrible, terrible lawyer, isn't Rishi Sunak terribly rich, that people just sort of go, mm. yeah, I'm switching off. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And hopefully those listening might re will remember uh, that and take a note. Um, just talking a bit more about, um, I mean, I'm fascinated with how your focus groups are put together. And um, and I've listened into one of the the, the focus groups um, on, a, on a piece of legislation, uh, not about elections necessarily. But um, does anyone ever say no to taking part or do people love being asked their opinion? Yeah, it's, it's a very good uh 
Recruiting, because what we find is, so firstly, the most important rule of recruitment for focus groups is that people mustn't know what they're being recruited to talk about. Um, because otherwise, what you end up with is a question time audience, people who like and love talking mm. about politics and want to make their point. So when people arrive at our focus groups, um, 99% of the time, they won't know if they're coming to talk about a new brand of mouthwash, um, you know, a, a sort of PR tourist campaign, uh, or to talk um, about um, politics. Um, so that's really important. The second thing is the way that we recruit is we work with uh, a company that basically has a network of local recruiters on the ground uh, right across the country that can sort of speak to people and get the right people. And sometimes we'll give them quite specific briefs. So it will be, you know, we will want to speak to people who always voted Labour but switched at the last election to the Conservatives uh, and are now considering switching back. And they will know who to sort of pick uh, and to uh, go to there. And people get an incentive for coming along to do it, financial incentive, which is, again, why you ensure you don't just get people who want to talk about politics. You're getting people essentially, you know, in some cases coming because you know, they want the incentive, and that matters mm -hmm. too. It makes it neutral. But what's interesting in, uh, of course, you can have good and bad focus groups, mm -hmm. um, but, but what I found interesting is that at the end of lots of the discussions we've done, particularly about kind of topical issues and getting people's views on what's happening nationally or locally, is people really enjoy having that opportunity. People will say, like, I mean, I've had people say at the end of focus, well, I've never been asked this stuff um, uh, before. I've never had that um, opportunity. So it's actually, you know, for lots of people, I think it's quite a, uh, a rewarding experience and you know very often <laughs> my job as moderator is trying to make people pipe down a bit because they've got so much that they uh, want to say but uh, but it's why I like it and I particularly like you know again doing those more you know focus groups of more disengaged people mm -hmm. who basically just sort of think well, you know those in power they, they don't listen to people like me um, would never dream of as I say going on something like question time or even I think would find it quite difficult even to do something like write to their MP unless they had a particular issue that they needed help with. So it's good to good to surface that. And my, you know, my, if I could wave a magic wand at uh, Whitehall and um, help to transform Whitehall, I would. I just think it would be brilliant if more civil servants listened in to folks. Mm -hmm. Because the politicians, I mean, you don't always, but you know, you get more opportunity to. Whereas the civil servants, just just seeing how ordinary people talk about it. Um, and talk about issues I think would be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, look, you're right, as an MP or as a candidate, you know, if, you, if you're doing the job properly, you should be on enough doorsteps to talk to people and talk to people who disagree with you. Um, whereas um, I think that's a very good uh, advice, actually, about um, uh, people who don't get those opportunities actually going out and um, uh, and listening. And I suspect a number of people coming find it quite cathartic, don't they, to, to talk about various things that have been really perhaps irritating them for a long, long time. And, and actually, whether or not you want to listen, Luke, you get to um you get to hear that then working those issues out yeah no quite there, there are times when i um you know the, the particularly sort of lively ones can be quite you know quite hard work to mm. sometimes manage the dynamics but equally you know there was a time i think it was you know it was in the autumn of last year when the cost of living uh was really biting and you're getting some stories from mm. these groups which were just so 
actually really, really upsetting. That I remember coming home after doing one one evening and saying to uh, my partner, I need to take a break for a week because actually, mm-hmm. you know, what you're hearing is just so, and obviously that's nothing compared to people who have to do that sort of job for um, uh, a living. But, you know, it's, it's, the stories are really powerful. Um, and again, one of the things that we really try and do is find opportunities for, um, again, people just to come and sit and listen to them. You know, we talked about civil servants, talked about politicians. Actually, we really try and make uh, our focus groups available to the media as much as possible. Because sometimes there's a sort of cultural issue and there's a very senior journalist who sat in on the discussion. And at the end, he said to me, um, he was like, I had no idea people talked about it that kindly or that compassionately. Um, I, it's totally different from you know the way we write about it. And that matters too, that sort of breaking that divide. Because often, you know, yeah, the, the media can, inadvertently, we have a great media, but sometimes they can play a role in amplifying the divisions as well. Well, absolutely, and and um, and look, talking of stories, I want to end on a on a you know asking you about sort of perhaps setting a setting a scene for some of our listeners because um, some of the people who work uh, for, for for grading, but also perhaps some of our listeners will will either be special advisors, they may be special advisors. You've been a special advisor in the UK government over an election period, and um, we often hear a lot about the candidates themselves, but actually. Um, for, for people like special advisors uh, who are, say, with MPs and candidate staff as well, people who are watching on the sidelines and whose jobs are on the line, go on, paint us a picture of how does that feel uh, when you're that, going through that period? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really stressful because, you know, you are, as you say, you're, you're, not, uh, you're not the candidate, but you are affected, um, you know, almost as much um by what happens and you know i think uh, you know special advisors in particular what happens is you know the election is called and basically you know you leave your pass on yeah. the reception desk that day you sort of go out and you are effectively you know you're fighting an election campaign in part to get your job back um at uh, at the end of it and um you know, and that will take, you know, as you know, that takes a, a mix of forms. And I think, you know, actually, I think special advisors, I think, sometimes have it slightly easier than sort of parliamentary staff in the sense mm. that special advisors will often be deployed to do various bits. You'll be in CCHQ mm. and given uh, a brief. Obviously, some in some cases, as I did, you go around with your minister and uh, help support them. But actually, you know, lots of parliamentary staff don't necessarily have that. They have to sort of go to local, you know, they they can volunteer locally which is important and uh, a vital part of what they do but they don't necessarily have that involvement in the day-to-day and there is there is something you know for all of the worry and the stress there is something great about being part of a team during yeah. an election and I remember one of the things which um things which makes Linton Crosby such a good uh campaign manager is he's very good at that sense of team and camaraderie um uh, as well um whether whether some of the the briefings about five thirty starts are necessarily uh, sensible, I think you know going into an election campaign tired and grumpy is uh, is is not what I would advise. I would advise people to get as much rest as you can in that, uh, recognizing it's an intense period. But um, but yeah. yes, I think that camaraderie and that being part of something matters. 
and perhaps also specialise in having their own driving licences, Luke. So they're not driven around, driven around by their bosses yeah. for the yeah. whole campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, do, I, I do carry the distinction of being the, the special advisor to be chauffeured by uh, his his minister uh, during the campaign. I will never forget arriving in um, Salford for um, when you were doing the morning uh, media round and because of election expenses, all that's what we were told. We were mm. put up in this terrible hotel where the queue to get in was uh, us sandwiched either side by stag and hen doos um <laughs> and we just were like please no one recognize her please no one recognize her anyway <laughs> the good news is the good news is i don't think they did and no. we, we we got it we got enough we quite far to... gone by the time we arrived at sort of 10 11 <laughs> at night so yeah but the reason I ask about that is just because I think in this election year, it's just worth remembering that there are an awful lot of people whose jobs are on the line, uh, who um, and and whether people are elected or not elected uh, has ramifications for quite a lot of other people, doesn't it, in the political sphere as to whether they carry on with their employment or, or not, basically. And uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, right from MPs to special advisors to parliamentary staff, um, yeah, the, yeah, there are lots of people's jobs who are at stake. And obviously, you know, we all go into this knowing that, you know, it is at uh, the whim of an electorate or a you know prime minister in the case of uh, uh, reshuffles. But still, you know, the, the, the pressure can be quite intense and it can, you know, and the fact that, uh, yeah, I do hope that people recognise in and amongst the sort of triumphalism of an election, you know, lots of people kind of losing their jobs and have to adjust to something sort of totally new um, yeah. as well. Um, I mean, I remember when the weirdest thing uh, when uh, I stopped being your special advisor was just that my phone stopped ringing. Um, and you're so used to this life, which is sort of, you know, 24 seven, like sort of responding to messages, emails, crises, proactive stuff, yeah. and then just one day, um, which again is an adjustment. It's quite a quite a shock to the system. Although hopefully provides a, a you know when you come down off that high, it provides a, a yes. way a route a reminder of of yeah. of, of normal life. Yeah. Look, Luke, thank you, thank you so much for your generosity in taking part today. I think you've given us a really good sense of you know what the polls uh, are telling us, but also how much might unfold and the issues and campaigns and the things we should be looking out for over the course of of twenty twenty four. So uh, thank you, thank you very much uh, indeed for uh, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's Vantage Point podcast. If you want to hear more fresh perspectives on the world we live in and the communications environment in which we operate, please subscribe or reach out by emailing vantagepoint at grayling.com. 